do not hinder them, a biblical and theological understanding of childhood conversion. And while I'm thinking about it, we're doing Q&A at the end, right? Okay. So at the end of our time together tonight, uh, we will do some Q&A, have a little bit of time for Q&A. Um, several years ago, I was having lunch with a pastor friend of mine in Texas, and uh, his name is Keith. And I said, Keith, I said, what is, what is the most difficult thing about being a pastor? And without a hesitation, he said, knowing when to baptize children. And that really wasn't the answer I was expecting from him. But he said, knowing when to baptize children. And so I got to thinking about that and um, mulled it over. And um, some things in my own life, I can look back, some, uh, some of the experiences that I've had. And so I really began to realize that this is a, a huge need uh, for right understanding on this issue. Because this is an issue that is wildly misunderstood. And I think that the Southern Baptist Church in particular, not that it's the only denomination that's done this, but the Southern Baptist Church in particular has baptized millions and millions of children who are not converted. Millions of children that are not converted. Uh, several years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention did a study on themselves. There was a lot of hand-wringing in the SBC because of the declining rates of baptism. And for the last almost 20 years, I guess, the SBC has been showing a steady, slowly, but slow but steady decline in the number of their baptisms. And so there's a lot of hand-wringing in the denomination about this, like, what's going on? We've got to figure this out. So they did a big internal study on their own denomination. And uh, after the study was out, they came forward and put forth the results and published them. And they said that... <laughs> The only age group that was showing an increase in the baptismal rates in the Southern Baptist denomination was age five and under. Five and under. And I was talking with a, a friend of mine who's a pastor, a different guy, but we were talking about this and he quipped. He said, he said yeah, Southern Baptist, we don't believe in infant baptism. We just practice it. Pretty well said. Okay, so let us lay just a little bit of groundwork here. And men, I want to address you. Men, it is our responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in our home. It's our responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in our home. And men, being the spiritual leaders in our homes does not simply mean taking your family to church on Sunday morning. That's not being the spiritual leader. That's part of it, but that's a very small part of it. But most men think, oh, if I take my family to church on Sunday, that's being the spiritual leader. Or, or if I say the blessing over the evening meal, uh, that's really going the extra mile. You've barely scratched the surface, guys. Being the spiritual leaders in our homes means that it is our responsibility to teach the Word of God to our wives into our children. It's our responsibility to do that. And yet the vast majority of professing Christian men have exported their spiritual responsibilities to the Sunday school teacher or to the youth group leader. And they think, oh, well, my kids get everything they need in Sunday school. My teenagers get everything they need in the youth group. No, they don't. No, they don't. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not against Sunday school, okay? I'm not against Sunday school. I'm, I'm grateful for uh, those Sunday school teachers out there that actually do study and, and prepare. Um, not all of them do that, but some do. Uh, so I'm grateful for the ones that do. But men, the very best Sunday school teacher with the very best of intentions cannot do what God has designed you and me to do can't do it. God has designed us to do this. Deuteronomy chapter 11, God speaking. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as, they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Men, 
Are you doing this? Are you talking of the things of the Lord with your family on a daily basis? When you walk along the road, when you sit in your house, when you lie down and when you rise up, are you doing this? Talking of the things of God, reading scripture to your wife, to your children, you should be doing this. This is being the spiritual leaders in the home. And the vast majority of professing Christian men don't do this. They leave it up to the Sunday school teacher, the youth group leader. It's our responsibility, men. It's our responsibility. It needs to be coming from you, from me. Various studies have been done, and they show Ken Ham, for example, at Answers in Genesis has written a book on this. It's uh, several, a number of years old now, but, but it basically shows that the vast majority of children who are raised in the evangelical homes, and they make professions of faith, at very early ages, and they made intellectual assent to the basic facts of the gospel, and they professed faith in Christ, and they get baptized. Once they grow up and they leave home, they go off to college, or they start their own families, their own careers. Once they leave the house, once they leave the house, guess what else they're leaving? They're leaving the church, and they're not coming back. No evidence of conversion in their life at all. And men, the responsibility of this in large part lies at our feet because we're not being the spiritual leaders in our homes. Now, some men do that and their children still grow up and walk away from the faith, even though the man, the husband was the spiritual leader. That does happen. But the vast, vast majority of men are not doing this. They're not being the spiritual leaders in their homes. We must be doing it. Okay, now, I want us to begin in earnest here, now that a little groundwork was laid. I want us to look at the nature of children, and we're going to contrast the nature of children with the nature of salvation and what the Bible says about it. Number one, the Bible says that children are easily tossed to and fro. Ephesians 4, verse 14, Paul says, we are no longer to be like little children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, compares people who are easily tossed to and fro to children. Dear friends, nothing is in the Bible by mistake. The Apostle Paul com- makes this comparison under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And Children, as you know, parents, are easily tossed to and fro, right? You can tell a very young child, you can tell a little child just about anything you want to tell him, and chances are he's going to believe it. You know, they don't, they, they think very concretely. They don't have a capacity for, for abstract thought. They think very concretely, and, and what captures a child's attention one week may be completely disinteresting to them the next week. They're easily tossed to and fro. They, they don't have any life experience to fall back on. And they think very, very concretely. I can remember when I was a little boy, I loved rice. I still do. But uh, I love rice. I mean, just give me a plate of rice and butter, and, and I'm, I'm a happy man. I was a happy boy back then. And I ate so much rice. One time my grandfather told me, he said, he said boy, you eat so much rice, you're going to turn into a Chinaman one day. And uh, and I thought he was thought he was serious. I really thought I would. I, I'm not nothing against Chinamen, but I just at all. But uh, but I, I I thought I actually would. Um, you've heard of Justin Boots? You know, you know the cowboy boot brand, Justin Boots. Uh, I thought they were named after me. <laughs> Egotistical, I know, but I I did. I thought they were named after me. Uh, I can remember as a boy growing up, uh, get up real early in the morning and get ready for school. And back in the day, it was Good Morning America and Willard Scott. Remember Willard Scott, the weatherman? And I can remember hearing Willard Scott give the national weather forecast. And from time to time, he would talk about snow in the Great Lakes region. Well, my home address was number eight, Great Lake Road. And so when he talked about snow in the Great Lakes region, I thought he was talking about my street. 
you know. And I can remember getting so mad at Willard Scott because it never snowed in my Great Lake region. And uh, I got so mad at Willard. But, um, you know, that's how a child thinks very concretely. A child, a young child, six, seven, eight years old, believes in Santa Claus. I believed in Santa Claus. I was baptized when I was seven years old. I was not converted, but I was baptized back then. And had I made intellectual assent to some basic facts of the gospel? Yes, I had. You know, did I believe in Jesus? I sure did, just like I believed in Santa Claus. Now, think about this. We're going to trust a child whose intellectual capacity allows for belief in a fat man in a red suit who's pulled all around the world, visits every home in one night, pulled on a sled by a team of flying reindeer. We're going to trust that same child who believes in that with matters of eternity, with wrestling with sin, godly sorrow, repentance, the wrath of God? Really? Does that make any sense? No. No. Childish thinking and reasoning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. You see, the Bible draws a very distinct, uh, a very clear line of distinction between the way children think and the way adults think. We don't think the same way. We don't reason the same way. And so we're going to trust a child who is young enough and whose intellectual capacity allows for belief in things like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy to wrestle with matters of eternity and know what genuine repentance is and the weight of their sin and the wrath of God and the meaning of Christ's atonement on the cross. Just because a child has made intellectual assent to some basic gospel facts does not mean that that child has truly been made regenerate by the Holy Spirit of God. I want us to look at the nature of salvation and contrast that with what we just looked at with the nature of children. When you look through the language of salvation in the New Testament, it is rather adult-sounding language, is it not? Take up the cross, Jesus said. We have really lost sight of the meaning of those words, take up the cross. When we think of taking up the cross today, we just kind of think of making it through some tough times. You know, just pulling up our, ourselves up by our bootstraps and, you know, making it through some tough times. And that's what it means to take up the cross. I've had a few people over the years come up to me and they will say things like this. Justin, you bear your cross well. Referring to my handicap, my cerebral palsy. Dear friends, my cerebral palsy is not a cross. Your cancer is not a cross. Multiple sclerosis is not a cross. Losing your job is not a cross. Having your house burned down, that's not a cross. Losing a loved one in a, in a car accident, that's not a cross. Are these trials? Yes, they are trials. But is that what Jesus meant when he said, take up the cross? Not at all. When Jesus said, take up the cross 2,000 years ago, friends, let me tell you something. People knew exactly what he meant. They knew what a cross was. They had seen crosses in action. A cross was a place of death. A cross was a gruesome instrument of execution. Jesus was saying, you must be willing to die for the gospel if called upon to do so. It's a high bar. Jesus said, deny yourself. 
Deny yourself and take up your cross. How many little children do you know who deny themselves? How many adults, for that matter, do you know who deny themselves? Very few. Very few. Even forsaking family. Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, Whoever does not hate his own father, mother, wife, sisters, brothers, his own children, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Was Jesus saying that we literally have to hate members of our own family in order to be a Christian? No, uh, because that would contradict everything else that Scripture teaches. But what he was saying is that if you truly belong to Christ, the love that you have for Christ, the devotion that you have for Christ, the commitment, the surrender would be so complete, would be so unconditional that it would make the love and devotion that you have even for members of your own family look like hatred by comparison. That's a high bar. But friends, we can't pretend like Jesus didn't say these things. He did. That's what a Christian looks like. The Bible also uses adult-sounding metaphors for being a Christian. The Apostle Paul says we are to be soldiers for Christ. Do we send little kids off into battle to fight wars? No. Not only do they lack the physical ability, they lack the mental maturity. Kids can't go fighting wars. We're to be slaves of Christ. Doulos, douloi in the plural. We're to be slaves of Christ. That's, that's complete, unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns us. And we are to be betrothed to Christ. We're the bride of Christ, right? Now, if your little seven-year-old girl were to come home from school one day and say, Mommy, Daddy, uh, Billy is my boyfriend, and uh, Billy and I are going to get married, would you think that was cute? Yeah, that's, that's cute. Would you think your little seven-year-old girl is sincere about marrying little Billy? Well, as sincere as a little seven-year-old girl could possibly be about such matters, but chances are you probably wouldn't be picking up the phone, calling the church, reserving the sanctuary for the happy occasion, right? No, this is adult-sounding language. The nature of salvation, also, we must remember there is a tension all throughout Scripture between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility and accountability of man. And call, uh, some people have pushed back against me and they say, oh, well, you're Justin, you're a Calvinist. And I mean, if, if they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved. There's nothing you can do about that. Well, in and of itself, yes, but let us remember that the Bible teaches both the responsibility of God and the responsibility. I mean, excuse me, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Luke 14, verse 28, Jesus says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? As I said the other day, Sunday I believe, salvation is free, discipleship is not. It will cost you to be a Christian. Following the Lord Jesus will cost you, and for many of us, it will cost us dearly. Do you think a six, seven, eight-year-old child is able to sit down and count the cost? No, especially not in this country. You know, we live in the, in, this is the Bible Belt of the United States of America. There's not a lot of cost, at least not yet, especially when you're a child. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. A child doesn't have any understanding of that. But I tell you what, in the first century, when someone became a Christian, they knew what they were signing up for. They knew they would be persecuted. That's not even on our radar, in this, especially not in this country. 
So yes, God is sovereign, but man is responsible, and the Bible teaches both of these things, sometimes even in the same verse. So there is a counting of the cost, and children just aren't able to do that. Now, playing devil's advocate, pardon the pun, uh, let's look at some of the verses that people point to to say, oh, well, this proves that children should be baptized. Luke chapter 18, verse 16, Jesus says, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. That's where I got the title of my book, Do Not Hinder Them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Well, it seems pretty simple to me that Jesus is saying, Permit children to come to them, to him. Don't hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. How, how much clearer could it possibly be? This is, a, this is the gold standard verse used to support baptizing young children. But let's look at this a little bit more in depth. The Greek term used here for children is paideon, and it denotes young children, very young children, not older children. The parallel account in Mark chapter 10 says that Christ took these children in his arms. He scooped them up and took them in his arms. Okay, so these are young children. These are basically toddlers. Okay? It's not talking about a 10, 11, 12-year-old child here. These are young children that he scooped up in his arms. And to such as these... The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus was using these children as an object lesson. Those who share in a young child's spiritual status. In other words, the point that Jesus was making is this. A little child contributes nothing to his physical well-being. A little child is completely and totally dependent upon his parents for his or her well-being. A little child cannot go out and hold a job, can't you know, bring home the bacon, can't pay the rent, can't pay the mortgage, can't pay the insurance on the car. You know, a, a, child, a small child cannot take care of himself or herself, completely dependent upon his parents. And to such as these, Jesus is making an object lesson. The kingdom of God belongs to people who understand that there is nothing that they can contribute to their own spiritual well-being. The kingdom of God belongs to people who understand that they are completely and totally dependent upon the mercy of Christ. It's not saying that this is not a proof text to baptize a young child. Not at all. And I go more in depth than this, of course, in my book. Also, let's look at the biblical record when it comes to children and being baptized. Well, Luke, Dr. Luke, we know that Luke was a physician by trade according to Colossians chapter 4, but Luke in the book of Acts records thousands of people being saved and baptized, none of which were children. It records Single conversions, it, it records mass conversions. Literally thousands and thousands of people became Christians in the book of Acts. It records this, records their baptisms. Not one time does it refer to any of those people as being children. None of them. Luke always uses the terms for adult men, anair, and for adult women, gune. I keep trying to make the joke to my wife that, you know, the Greek word for women, gune, I, I keep telling her that women are just a bunch of goonies. She, she doesn't seem to think it's as funny as, as I do. But adult man, adult women, those are the terms that are used. There is a word for children, and it is not used anywhere in the book of Acts. Not in conversion, anyway. Children are mentioned 22 times in the first five books of the New Testament, the four Gospels, and the book of Acts. But in none of these examples were any of these children baptized, and none were ever referred to as disciples. The Bible is completely absent in referring to children as disciples of Christ. The youngest conversion of which we are aware 
that is recorded in Scripture is that of Timothy. And Timothy was converted probably when he was about 17 to 18 years of age. That's the youngest conversion that we are aware of that was recorded in the New Testament. Teenager, an older teenager at that. So, when to baptize? Is there an age of accountability? Now, this is uh, an issue that is debated back and forth, and I know good, faithful brothers uh, who come down on different sides of this. Some say, yes, there is an age of accountability. Others say, no, there's not. Um, I would commend to you a book entitled Safe in the Arms of God, written by John MacArthur. Familiar with that book, brother? Got, oh, excellent. Got two out there. So if you've not read that book, it basically deals with what happens to babies and children when they die. Uh, Safe in the Arms of God. It's an excellent, excellent book. I think it's very helpful. Um, the Bible does not say children become accountable at age, fill in the blank, you know, whatever. There's not a statement, clear statement like that. But I think when you look at the compendium of Scripture and what it teaches about the nature of children and the nature of conversion, uh, I think we can get a, a fairly good idea. Um, number one, I do believe that when babies die, young children die, I believe they are, as the title of MacArthur's book is, they are safe in the arms of God. And you know, when you look at the world population right now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself wondering, man, there's just not a lot of real Christians out there. I mean, real Christians, not a lot of them out there, you know, and but the Bible says that heaven's going to be full of, you know, an innumerable amount of people. And you kind of start to wonder sometimes, where are, all these, where are all these people going to come from? You know where a lot of them are going to come from? Abortions? Miscarriages? I didn't know this before, but in doing the research for my book, did you know that uh, they think about one out of every four pregnancies ends in a miscarriage? I had no idea. About one out of every four ends in a miscarriage. Dear sister, if, you've, if you're one of those ladies who's had a miscarriage, you'll see that baby again, assuming you belong to Christ. You'll see that little one again. I believe that young children and babies are safe in the arms of God. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 21, God said to the Jews who were sacrificing their own children, to Moloch, which is exactly what we're doing in this country with abortion. He said, you slaughtered my children. Oh, you slaughtered my children. They belong to him. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 34 and Jeremiah chapter 19, God refers to children as the innocents. It does not mean that they were, are not tainted with original sin. They are. And I believe that babies and young children who die are saved by God's sovereign grace. Same way that we are saved by God's sovereign grace. They are safe in the arms of God. MacArthur argues in his book that don't necessarily look for a date on the calendar at which your child becomes on this specific date. Okay, now they're accountable. They weren't yesterday, but they are today. Don't look for that. Look for a state of, of maturity. He says, I think it's a good, good reason to, to lean this way. He says somewhere in the neighborhood of age 12 to 13, somewhere in that general neighborhood. But again, not really so much a date on the calendar, but a state of, of mental maturity. So, when should we baptize children? Uh, I do not believe it is wise at all to baptize a young child who's five, six, seven, eight years old. But what I would say is look for these things in the life of your child. Look for evidences of genuine conversion. Evidences of genuine conversion. And here's the beautiful thing about salvation. Salvation should look the same in everyone, regardless of their age. Whether you're talking about, you know, maybe a young teenager 
or you're talking about someone who's 90. Salvation should look the same as everyone, in everyone. When God saves a young person, that young person does not get a junior Holy Spirit. He, re- he receives the same Holy Spirit whom we all receive. And so salvation should look the same. Here are some of the things that you should see if God has truly saved your child. Number one, there should be a change in that person's life. There should be a marked change. Uh, Anyone who is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made what? New. Friends, you cannot go from being dead in trespasses and sins to alive in Christ and there be no change. If there has not been a marked change in your life or anyone's life of any age, then conversion has not taken place. There must be a change. There should be a godly sorrow in that person's life. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul speaks of two different kinds of sorrow over sin. As I said last night in my gospel presentation, but for those of you who may not have been here last night, the Bible speaks of two different kinds of sorrow over sin, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. A worldly sorrow leads to death, but a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. A worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. What would happen to me if my sin were exposed, if everybody knew what I was doing on the side, what would be the consequences to me? And so we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over our sin, but because we don't want the consequences of our sin. But if we could get away with it, if nobody would know about it, we would run right back to it. That is a worldly sorrow over sin, and a worldly sorrow leads to death, eternal death. But the other kind of sorrow is a godly sorrow. What is a godly sorrow? A godly sorrow over sin is that sorrow that is vertically oriented. A godly sorrow over sin comes when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. A godly sorrow over sin is the kind of sorrow that David had. Remember in Psalm chapter 51, David had committed horrific sin. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he committed murder to try to cover up his adultery. Horrific sin. And then God sent Nathan to him, and Nathan came up to David, and Nathan did what a good friend does, and he pointed his finger at David, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you are the man. And God used Nathan And that strong confrontation to break David. And David cried out against you and you alone. O Yahweh, have I sinned. My sin is ever before me. You're blameless when you speak. I've got no defense. And he grieved over his sin. Because he understood that his sin grieves God. Anyone who is truly in Christ should have this godly sorrow over sin. It does not mean that as Christians we are perfect. We're not. Christians do sin. 1 John 1, nine, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was written to Christians. Christians can and do sin. But here's the thing, dear friends. If you're truly in Christ, you may stumble, and you will, you'll stumble into sin but you're not going to swim in it. You're not going to relish sin. You're not going to enjoy sin. You're not going to look for opportunities to sin. When you sin as a Christian, it will grieve you. Godly sorrow. Genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is in and of itself granted by God. God grants repentance. Did you know that you cannot repent on your own? That initial repentance unto salvation, you can't do it. It's granted to us by God because we're dead in trespasses and sins and God grants to us repentance. 
And repentance is a lot more than just changing your mind. How many times have we heard repentance preached that way? Oh, metanoia, repentance means to change your mind. Well, yeah, it, that is what the Greek word metanoia means, literally, to change your mind. But, dear friends, the full meaning of a word in Scripture is not always determined strictly by the dictionary definition. It is the Holy Spirit of God who puts these words in their context, and it is the context of Scripture that determines their meaning, not just the lexicon or the dictionary. And when you look at how repentance, metanoia, is used in the New Testament, it means far more than just intellectual assent, than just changing your mind. It does mean that, but it means a lot more than that. Because genuine fruit bears, excuse me, genuine repentance bears genuine fruit. When God grants repentance, yes, our minds are changed, but everything about us is changed. Our desires are changed. Our affections are changed. We begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And there will be real, tangible fruit in keeping with repentance. The Apostle Paul said to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he said, So, King Agrippa, I kept declaring that all men everywhere should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Real repentance bears real fruit. Zacchaeus kind of fruit in Luke chapter 19. Remember Zacchaeus, wee little man, wee little man was he? Climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Well, he had been defrauding people. He's a tax collector. Jesus confronted him. And what did Zacchaeus say? Lord, if I have defrauded anyone, I will repay them four times over. That's real tangible fruit. Real repentance bears real fruit. And that fruit should be evident to everyone around that person. It should be evident. It should be evident to the body of Christ. Godly affections. We love what God loves. We have a love for Him. We have a love for His Word. We have a love for what is holy. We have a love for the brethren. This is all part of the fruit in keeping with repentance and personal holiness. Personal holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, drunkards, or bilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. For such were some of you. You were those things. But you're not anymore. You've been changed. You've been saved. Old things have passed away. All things are made new. You were these things, but you are not anymore. And Paul goes on and he says, he says, but you were sanctified. You were justified. Personal holiness. Salvation is not perfection. It is direction. Which direction is your life going? Over time, there should be a decreasing pattern of sin in our lives. In a inverse increasing pattern of holiness over time none of us is perfect but as time goes on the more we, we mature in Christ the more the word of God saturates our hearts and minds we will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ we will be increasingly conformed into the image of our master there should be an increasing pattern pattern of holiness and a decreasing pattern of sin in everyone who is saved everyone Yes, we all start off as baby Christians, but babies grow up. Babies don't stay babies. And if you see someone who professes to have been a Christian for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you don't see these fruits in their life, you don't see real tangible fruit, real evidence that conversion has taken place, it's because conversion has not taken place. We should have a hunger for the word. We should put aside all malice and we should hunger for the pure milk of the word. You should have a desire for the word of God. 
It should be your joy to read and study God's Word. You should want to read and study God's Word. There should be increasing discernment in a genuine Christian's life. Hebrews chapter 5, the apostle, so used to saying the apostle Paul, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Whoever wrote Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, he says, uh, he said, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. There should be an increasing pattern of discernment. If you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you are saved. You are indwelt by, by him, the third person of the triune Godhead. He creates in you a desire to read and study God's word. As you read and study God's word and your, your mind is saturated with the word of God over time, as time goes on, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have discernment. It's going to happen. And even though I've already picked on Joel Osteen a little bit this week, Say again, Joel Osteen, I mean, if I've talked to people who profess to have been Christians for decades, and they like Joel Osteen. Let me tell you something. If you like Joel Osteen, if you think Joel Osteen is a good preacher, and you claim to have been a Christian for years and years and years, maybe decades, let me tell you, I'm concerned. Because it doesn't take much discernment to realize that Joel Osteen is a wolf. He's a false teacher. And so all these folks that claim to have been Christians for so many years, and yet they, in fact, I had a lady one time tell me, I'll never forget it, in a Lifeway bookstore. She literally told me that her two favorite preachers were Joel Osteen and John MacArthur. And I'm like... You know how dogs do, and they, they, dogs cock their head, they go, you know, I was like. <laughs> A love for the brethren. No matter where I go in this world, what culture I'm in, uh, none of those things matter. When I am with like-minded believers in Christ, there is an instant love for these folks. I love them and they love me. And I would throw myself in front of a bus for them because they're my family. They're my family. Love for the brethren. This is what, this is one of the clear hallmarks of a genuine Christian. Steadfastness in temptation and persecution. Steadfastness in temptation and persecution. Friends, one of the marks of a Christian is that even though we, as I said, will stumble into sin, we don't swim in it. As Christians, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he gives us a way of escape to every temptation that comes our way. Every temptation that comes our way. Oh, I, I just, I've got a, I've just, I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten. And men have told me that they, and I know we have young ears here, in the, but they have told me that they look at stuff that they ought not to be looking at, and they say, oh, I, I, I just, I struggle with it, and I just, I can't, I can't beat it. And my response is, no, you can, you just don't want to. You just don't want to. Because if I were to, if I were to put in a little, little small explosive device implanted in your right arm, and the next time, men, you looked at something on the computer that you ought not to be looking at, and that little explosive device detonated and it blew your right arm off your body, you think you could refrain from looking at things then? Of course you could. Of course you could. So you know what you've just admitted to me? You have just admitted to me that you value your right arm more than you value your wife. And you value your right arm more than you value Christ. A steadfastness in temptation and persecution. And you're not going to be able to 
evaluate these things in a child that's five, six, seven, eight years old? I mean, what kind of temptation does a child that young face? The temptation not to clean up his room? You know, you're, you're not going to tempt a, a seven-year-old boy with alcohol or things he ought not to be looking at. You're not going to tempt a seven-year-old boy with, with that. But you add ten years to that age, then it's a different ballgame. Give them an extended period of time to see if they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I'm not saying, please, I don't want you to misunderstand me. If your child professes faith in Christ, I'm not saying throw cold water on that. Not at all. You want to rejoice in that. And you want to, be, you want to encourage your children in that. And say, that is wonderful. That's, I'm so glad to hear that. And you know what? We're going to continue to learn about God together. We're going to continue to read the Bible together. We're going to continue to go to church, and we're going to continue to, to have fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ at, at uh, Covenant Baptist Church or wherever you go to church. And you want to nurture that and encourage that, but give them an extended period of time to see if you see these things in their lives, to see if they bear real fruit in keeping with real repentance. I want to ask you to take your copy of God's Word and let's go to the book of Daniel. And you may be thinking, Daniel, what, is, what does Daniel have to say about children and conversion? Daniel chapter 1 is a, is a fascinating chapter on, on many levels. And I'm not going to give a full exposition here, but I do want to bring a couple of things to your attention here from Daniel chapter 1. And we'll read verses. Uh, we'll read verses one through eight. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And so, what what is happening here is that the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, head of the Babylonians, king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to the city. All right? And the Lord gave, Yahweh gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, Youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So we'll pause here for a second. It says, youths in whom was no defect. We think that these youths were teenagers, young men probably between ages... 15, 16, 17 years of age. So that, that age range. Teenagers. And these were intelligent young men. They were physically fit. They were smart. They were well educated. The cream of the crop. And what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do was to take some of these youths in whom was no defect. I would have been left out of that group. He didn't want anybody with several palsies, so I... I'd have been safe. But he wanted to take these youths in whom was no defect, and he wanted to use these young men for his own benefit, for his own personal service. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So the king figured that about three years would be a sufficient amount of time to basically brainwash these young men. Now, he was taking them away from their homes, hundreds of miles away from their homes. This wasn't a summer camp kind of thing. Okay, he took them from their families, and he stripped from them everything that they had ever known. Everything that they had ever known was now 
gone. Mom and dad, gone. Everything that they had been taught, they were being re-educated. They were going to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So he wanted to strip from them everything that they had ever known, brainwash, excuse me, brainwash them for three years, and then use them and their raw talents for his own personal service. Number, verse number six, now among them from the sons of Judah, notice that phrase, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So it was a larger group than just these four. Now, among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And we really don't know the size of this group. I've seen some scholars say it was about 50. Others say it was probably closer to five or 600. Let's just take the conservative end of that estimate. Let's call it 50. So four out of the 50 were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. It's very interesting, these names, because their original names, their Hebrew names, all say something about Yahweh. They point to Yahweh. They say something about his character and his nature. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. Azariah means Yahweh is my help. So their original names all point to God. They say something about him, his character, and his nature. But Nebuchadnezzar, you see, wanted to give them new names. And so he gave them new names. Daniel, he named Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he named um, Shadrach. Uh, Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. Interesting, uh, Mishael's name means who is what God is. His new name, Meshach, means who is what Aku is. Aku was a pagan Babylonian god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego means servant of Nego. So their new names, pagan kings, their new names all refer to either pagan kings or pagan deities. And oftentimes the pagan kings were referred to as deities, so kind of one and the same. So their, their original names point to God. Their new names all point to pagan deities. Isn't it interesting that we know these young men by their pagan names? You know, if I were to say, well, who's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Maybe not everybody would know, but who's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Oh, we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, we have songs about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, kind of got a rhyme to them and a cadence to them, but it's kind of interesting and a little sad, honestly, that we know these young men by their pagan names. So the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was stripping from them everything that they had ever known. Now look in verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, think about this. These young men, these teenagers, had been taken from mom and dad, and everything that they have ever known is now gone. They are now hundreds of miles away in a pagan kingdom and up until this point, they had gone along with pretty much everything. Want us to teach, want to teach us the literature and the language of the Chaldeans? Okay, that's fine. Whatever floats your boat. Uh, want to give us new names? All right, give us new names. Knock yourself out. But when it comes to the king's choice food or the wine which he drank, Daniel and his friends said, nope, not going to do that. That is a line we will not cross. Now, that's kind of a surprising thing when you think about it. I mean, if it had been me and I had been taken away from my home when I was a teenager and everything that I had known has been stripped away from me, I mean, the one bright spot in an otherwise very unpleasant situation 
would be the king's choice food in the wine which he drank. You know, I'd be looking over there, well, at least I'm going to get a good meal out of this thing. You know, that prime rib over there is looking pretty good. That would be the one thing that I would eagerly accept. Would be good food, and choice wine. But that's the one thing that Daniel and his friends said, nope, not going to do it. Because they knew that they were about to be tested. And they knew that when they passed that test, they wanted all of the credit to go to the only one to whom it belonged. And that's God. But out of this group of at least 50, it was only Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that said, no, we're not going to defile ourselves with that. All of their other friends that had been taken from their homes, they went along with it. Like, yeah, give me some of that prime rib. I'll, I'll take it. They all did defile themselves with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Now think about that. All of these young men, these youths in whom was no defect, they came from the same place. They came from the same background. They were taught the same scriptures. They served the same God. They had the same faith. Cookie cutter. But when it came down to the temptation, when it came down to the persecution, four out of that much larger group, four said no. Now, if you had taken the entire group of youths in whom was no defect and done Bible drill with them, you know what? They would have run, every single one of them would have run circles around any of us, around any kid that you put in vacation Bible school. They knew the answers. What was the difference? Real temptation. Real persecution. And it's not like anybody would have known. I mean, back then, there was none of their friends were going to take a picture of them eating the King's Choice food and put it up on Facebook. Mom and Dad wouldn't have known. They'd have been none the wiser. But there is one who would have known. And that's God. And they feared him. For four it is only real temptation and real persecution that will really bring forth and test the genuineness of one's faith and friends you're not going to be able to tell that when your child is five six seven eight nine years old give your child an extended period of time wait until they're older until they bear real fruit in keeping with repentance. So when should you baptize? I'm not going to put an age on it. I'm not going to say wait until age 17 or 18 or 20. I would, I would wait. I would wait until that child is well into his teenage years. But whatever the age before anyone is baptized of any age, that person should be able to articulate a clear testimony of his conversion. You should be able to give your testimony. How many times have I seen a, a church service? I've seen it in person myself or seen it on YouTube or you know, TV all the time. The vast, vast, vast majority of evangelical churches, Southern Baptist churches, they have the baptistry up there and the preacher, one of the staff members gets in the baptistry and in walks a little five, six, seven, eight-year-old kid. Sometimes the water in the baptistry is deeper than that child is tall. They have to stand on a stool. And here's what they ask them. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you accept him as your personal Savior and Lord? Yes. Based upon your profession of faith, I baptize you, my brother or sister, and down that child goes into the water. That's not a profession of faith. No, you have that person give his testimony. If he's afraid of speaking in public, have that person. You can write it out and he can read it.
But if you're not to the point where you can give a testimony of how Christ has changed your life, then you're not ready to be baptized. I don't care what age you are. A person should be able to articulate his testimony to the elders and to the church. And you know what? This is a tremendous... It, it, it whittles down on the number of false professions. It will cut way, way down. We can never get to perfection, Okay. I mean, you're never going to have 100% absolute confidence that every single person that is baptized in your church is absolutely, without a doubt, converted. You're never going to be able to have 100% certainty. But it will help tremendously if you require a person of any age to give his testimony before the church, before that person is baptized. And you know what? It's a blessing for the church. It's a tremendous blessing for the body. It's a great encouragement to the saints to hear these testimonies. Sometimes I'll go and watch John MacArthur's church on Sunday nights uh, just, to, just to see, hear their testimonies of the people that they baptize. It's tremendously encouraging. And should be able to give their testimony to the elders of the church. The elders of the church should sit down with this person of any age and listen to their testimony and see if it's a credible testimony. Okay. As I said, do not discourage, encourage, but wait. Wait. Give them an extended period of time to see if they bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not only for their sake, but also for the sake of the gospel. It's a large enough concern to wait for the sake of your child because the last thing you want to do is give your child a false assurance of his conversion. How many of us can raise our hands in here and say that when we were in um, vacation Bible school, when we were in the first or second grade, you know, the teacher said, well, does, who wants to ask Jesus to be his Lord and Savior? Or I've even heard it said, who wants to ask Jesus to be his forever friend? I've heard that before, too. You know, and what kid doesn't want to make Jesus his or her forever friend? And so they raise their hands, and they've made intellectual assent to the basics of the gospel. And uh, the preacher or the teacher or whatever, sometimes the evangelist at a youth crusade, uh, they'll say, now, you've prayed the sinner's prayer, which is not in the Bible, by the way. But you've prayed the sinner's prayer, and I want you to write it down right here on the inside cover of your Bible. You prayed the sinner's prayer on December the 3rd. 1988 and if you ever doubt your salvation you go back and you look at that oh, nope nope I remember yep I was saved back on December the 3rd 1988 well what year is it now well it's 2021 is there ever any evidence of conversion in your life well no not really but I was saved in 1988 don't you ever doubt it because you wrote it in the front cover of your bible that's the assurance of your salvation that's garbage Has there been a change in your life? So you do it, you wait for the child's sake, and you also wait for the sake of the gospel. Because what's going to happen if you baptize, allow your little child to be baptized, and they're not truly converted? Then once they do become teenagers, and once they really do face real temptation, real persecution, you know what's going to happen? They're going to live like the world. Why? Because they've not truly been converted. Oh, but I was baptized. And that brings reproach on the gospel. We have millions of people in this country alone that are walking around thinking they're Christians because they, were, they prayed the sinner's prayer in vacation Bible school and got baptized. And yet they're living like the world because they are part of the world. Oh, but I got, I got baptized. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. No. That brings reproach on the gospel. So for the sake of the gospel, wait. Wait. Uh, as I close tonight, maybe some of you are sitting here tonight and you're thinking, you know, I was baptized when I was a kid. And I, I understand now that I was not truly converted when I was a child. But I know I am now. You know what happened? That happens a lot. It happened to me. I was baptized when I was seven years old. 
I wasn't saved. I wasn't converted. That that didn't happen to me until much, much later in life, well into my adulthood. Um, But then when I truly did get saved and I began to see these changes in my life, the things that we looked at, the change of your desires, affections, and the ability to withstand real temptation, real persecution, and I began to realize what had really happened to me, I realized that I had just actually just truly been converted I got baptized because I had never really been baptized oh I'd been dunked but I'd never really experienced believers baptism maybe some of you are sitting here tonight and you're thinking that's me I was baptized when I was a kid but I know now that I wasn't really saved but I know I am now that happens so many times at some point later in life, you actually do get saved. If that's you, you realize that, yeah, I, I know I'm a believer now, but I wasn't back when I was a kid. May I joyfully encourage you to be biblically baptized? John MacArthur has said that our churches are full of baptized unbelievers and unbaptized believers. There's a lot of people sitting in our pews that are genuine Christians, but they're still looking back to their baptism when they were in first or second grade or whatever. They're genuine believers, but they've never been biblically baptized. May I joyfully encourage you to do that. It'll be a tremendous blessing for you. You should do it. It's the first act of obedience, really, that we should do upon our conversion. And it'll be a tremendous blessing and a tremendous encouragement to an awful lot of folks in your church. There's a lot of our folks that are genuine Christians, but they need to be baptized because conversion happened later in life. So, all right.